You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today, we have a special guest missionary with us. Let's prepare our hearts as our guest missionary brings forth God's truths from His Word today. I travel all over America. I travel a lot of places. The average mentality of our Baptist churches is that Islamic people are the Ninevites and we'd really wish they were dead. That's honestly, wherever I go, the average mentality of, I've heard this so many times, let's just go drop the big one over there, let God sort them out. I could care less about them. Well, that was Jonah's attitude towards the Ninevites. They are people for whom Christ died too. Most of them are what I call pre-Pentecost. They don't even know Jesus has come. They don't have a clue, the real Jesus Christ. And uh, I, have, uh, I read a lot. Uh, there's a real good book called The Insanity of God about a missionary who was in Somalia for years. The battle he had with trying to win them and then they die because they got, got killed. Somalia's huge. Then one of my favorite books, if you want to know a little bit about it, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's called Seeking Allah, but finding Jesus. The man went ahead and started working with, uh, oh, the Indian guy out of Atlanta now, but I uh, can't think of his name. But uh, uh, I, Ravi Zacharias, yes. But I believe the gentleman that wrote that book is dying of cancer, if I'm not mistaken, or has died from cancer. But uh, tremendous book. I have sat on airplanes in India and I had photocopied several pages of it because I always sit by some Islamic person or Muslim and, and uh, I will start talking. And by the way, I've, my experience, as long as you don't go in doing something stupid, like, you know, hey, he's a pedophile, you know, doing something stupid, they love to talk to you. And if they find out you know a little bit about Islam, they even want to talk more because most of the time, we Americans know very little about any of it. And um, I would take those pages and uh, uh, read some of them. I'd say, now tell me what you think of that. I always think of the verses in, in Acts chapter 8. I've argued with the Lord what to preach tonight. There's a sermon I wish I could preach tonight, but the Lord keeps leading me another way because I enjoy preaching it. But it, it's uh, out of Acts chapter 8 also, which I preached the other night. But uh, I love Philip's approach to the Ethiopian eunuch. He simply said, do you understand what you're reading? It wasn't a hard approach. It was a soft approach. It was just, it was, it was almost a loving approach. You know, hey, you're reading that. Do you understand what you're reading? And Paul, over and over again in the book of Acts, persuaded and reasoned with them out of Scripture. Isaiah said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. It's not just four points, bow your head, pray a prayer. You've you got, got to sit, sit and go through the scripture and help, help them understand. understand. And, and there's a lot of things that go along there. But I appreciate your work. I mean that. That's not an easy work. Uh, one of my friends works with Muslim people. He makes a statement in a book that the average Muslim men that, man that he has met that gets saved has generally read the Bible almost five times before he ever trusts the Lord as his Savior. And I wonder sometimes how many Christians actually read the Bible that much. Uh, he tells a story of flying into a city in the Southeast Asia. 
And uh, he didn't want to go at first. He was meeting a doctor. But as he got off the plane, and in most places we don't go through nice little tunnels, and you know, you, you walk down the, the side of the plane, you get off, you walk. Three Islam, Islamic men were walking up to him and uh, in this very Muslim country and said, are you a Christian? He battled, what do I answer? You know, how, how do I answer this question? And they said, God told us to talk to the first white man that got off this plane. We've been meeting for a month, reading the Bible together, waiting for somebody to get off the plane. And he went for the next six days to share with them the scripture, and they received the Lord as their Savior. God's doing something among them. And uh, he may not be exactly in the way we think he should do it, but he is doing things in their hearts and lives, and I appreciate that. I just want to publicly say also thank you for the kindness uh, my... Uh, landlord where I'm staying and his wife. Uh, I appreciate where I'm staying. Uh, it's very, very nice and uh, better than I deserve. And it is not a profit dungeon, as I talked about the other night. It is a beautiful place to stay. And uh, they put uh, so many snacks in there. <clears throat> My son is now a policeman, but when he was a younger boy, he had a bit of a smart aleck attitude, and there was this bike that we were in Canada, and this policeman was riding a bicycle one time. And he walked up and he walked around the bicycle. The policeman said, Young man, can he help you? He said, Yeah, I'm wondering where you put the donuts. Well, anyway, he is now, uh, uh, he is now a policeman, all right? And I tease him about that. Oh, those donuts have been a thorn in my flesh. Uh, they just sit over there going, Eat me, eat me, eat me, eat me. And uh, it's, been, it's been tough. There's a banana sitting there saying, it never says a word. <laughs> that donut says, eat me, eat me. You ever notice at the grocery store, they don't put apples and oranges at the checkout counter because they don't talk. But a Snickers bar talks. <laughs> Amen. All right. But uh, thank you so much for allowing me to stay there. It's been a blessing and uh, the use of the vehicle. I, I stopped to get some fuel today, and I pulled the wrong button, and it opened the trunk. And so I thought, oh, I need to close the trunk. When I opened up the trunk, somebody's left a big thing of nacho cheese in there. And so uh, I thought I could have been eating that stuff. But anyway, no. <laughs> but uh, I know I, the, the, it's a very nice car. Uh, been able to get out in that way because I like, I lived in Canada for 10 years. And uh, my phone just naturally will find a Tim Hortons coffee place. And I have gone all but today to get me a, a couple Tim Horton cups of coffee. They got coffee in the room. I appreciate it. But just for old time's sake, I wanted to go get some Tim Hortons. And uh, so I knew when I was coming to Michigan, I thought to myself, I'm getting Tim Hortons. I do know the closest one is Ashland, Kentucky, believe it or not. That's the farthest one south. I've found it before. But uh, thank you for allowing me to be here. You're fun to preach to, and I mean that sincerely. Now, uh, I'm a southern boy. I was raised up north, but I've been in south all my life. And uh, I know down south we talk a little bit more, okay? And uh, we, 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 we're a little bit more vocal. But... Uh, uh, you folks may not say it as much, but I can see the expressions. It's there. Now, when I lived in Canada, they didn't always amen. 
they'd write it on a piece of paper and hand it to their neighbor next to them, you know, but uh, uh, no, I'm teasing, you know that. But thank you so much. You listen so well. Uh, I, I want to share, you don't have to turn there, and I mean this sincerely. This, I don't like false humility. I'm not trying to say that. But I always remember Luke chapter 17, verse number 10. The Bible says, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say. doesn't say just think it. Say it. We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. And honestly, it's been my privilege to be here. Uh, as your pastor says, I do approach faith promise a little different. I like to call them mission revivals. I like to, because I believe if God gets our heart, he gets the rest of us too. Amen. Uh, he gets the totality of us. And so the message tonight will be a little bit different than what I have. say that every night, don't I? But it, it will be a little bit different because I'm shifting gears to a little bit more of a teaching. Because this is about setting the budget for the next year. You're going to have a, a, a banquet and you're going to turn in your commitments, if you will. It's not a pledge. I grew up Methodist church. We had pledges and they'd send us a bill once in a while when we didn't give them in. But no, this, nobody's going to send you a bill, say, Phil, you know, you're behind. It's between you and God, what you believe God would have, what you, what you believe God will give through you for the next year. And sometimes God will give through us what he will not give to us. And so tonight I want to talk just a little bit about the financial end of missions and hope and pray that God would speak to our hearts. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 6. The fellowship has really been good. I appreciate all the missionaries that have come. Pastor and Brother Ben taking me out to eat. I am quite fed up. And uh, no, they've been so kind to me and I appreciate it so much. Uh, the reason I picked that is because I just, I like, I can't go to Starbucks. I can't pay $4 for a, some perfumed coffee. I just, there's something inside me that doesn't want to do that. And I can eat a sirloin as well as I can eat a ribeye, you know. And so I thought, well, it's a little cheaper, okay. Uh, and it was, to me, it was very, very good. So I'm quite contented, all right. But in 1 Timothy chapter number 6, look at verse 17. <coughs> the Bible says, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Now, Lord, I, I really want to preach tonight. I want to convey truth, and I need your help. Uh, it's been good so far, the music. Lord, thank you that you did come, and you died for us, rose again that third day. Please help me, help me to communicate truth tonight from my heart through these lips to the ears and down into the very hearts of the people. May the word of God, that's the only part that really makes a difference, 
find good ground. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you're 20 years old, and there may be some in their 20s here, a lot of questions come in your mind. You'll say, well, who will I marry? Uh, what is my career going to be? What am I going to do? Then when you turn 30, you start thinking, how can I establish my career? And how will my kids turn out? Are they going to make it? Am I going to be able to be a good parent? Then when we get into the 40s, they tell us, I don't remember it, but it says, we start saying, is this job really what I want to do? And uh, why is my life so hard? And let's just face it, sometimes life just plain gets hard. It's not easy. Then we turn into the 50s and we start to, uh, we start to think about how's it turned out so far? You know, uh, I wonder what I'll do that's significant in the next 25 years. You know, is my life over? Have I done everything I'm going to do? Then we get to the 60s, hello, and we say, will my health hold out? You know, is my body going to hold up? And we begin to say, when will I see my grandkids? All right, we, you know, things be prioritized a little bit different. Now, I'm not there yet, but I have been told that when we hit 70s, we start to say, was my life worth it? We start recollecting and rethinking. And then we also start thinking, will I be remembered? My wife and I have discussed this many times. I've buried many, many people. Do you know? It's a good possibility your casket's already sitting in town. We could have the funeral by Friday and Sunday. Half the church wouldn't even know you died. And we want to question sometimes, will I be remembered? Has my life meant anything? Then they say when we get in our 80s, possessions shine a whole lot less brightly than they used to. Things that bring joy are most of the time in our 80s the intangibles. Things like a phone call, the touch of a spouse's hand, or just a quiet walk, presence of our children, and then especially the laughter of our grandchildren. We start to think of those things. Now, God has placed us on earth to work. He told Adam to work with the sweat of his brow and so forth, but to work on earth to earn and to care for others, not just ourselves. God asked us, to, I believe with all my heart, to devote ourselves to a radical brand of generosity that helps to change lives and leaves a true legacy. When Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 12, God told him, I'm going to bless you in order that you might be a blessing. God blesses so that we might bless someone else. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, charge them that are rich. And if you've heard me the last few nights, I stop real quick and say, okay. Like I said, okay, who's Philip? Who's Ethiopia? Well, who's rich? If I ask you tonight, don't do it, please. I'm not here to embarrass anybody. But if I said, how many of you would say, I'm rich? No, don't do it. All right. We, we probably wouldn't want to raise our hand. And even if we were, 
We don't want to do it because uh, we think we know who's rich. You know, Bill Gates is rich. You know, what that guy that just got the pipe bomb in his house, Soros or whatever, they say he's a billionaire. We sit and say, well, that guy's rich. You know, U.S. News and World Report about 10 years ago came out with a report on wealth, and they said that if you earn $37,000 a year, you are in the top 4% of the world. If you earn $37,000 a year, you are in the top 4% of the world. Believe it or not, they said if you earn $45,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. Look back at, at chapter number 6, back in verse number 5. Paul writing to Timothy says, perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. And of course, we've lived in a day and age, it's not as, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent, maybe I just don't hear it as much, but we've always talked about the prosperity gospel. You know, if you're a Christian, you're going to get rich. And, and it was happening back in Timothy's day too, because he says they're supposing that gain is godliness. If you've got money, you must be godly. And he says, you withdraw yourself. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He said, no, godliness and being content with what God has done in your life, that's great gain. All right? And then he goes on to say, for we brought nothing into this world, and as certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment... Let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich, now notice he shifts gears here. Now he says, if you've got food and raiment, be content. If you've got anything above food and raiment, you're rich. When my kids were little, we had three, and uh, we always didn't always have a lot of money and my wife isn't big on all the sweets like I am, but she, uh, she would go buy a, a bag of M&Ms and she would sit and split them amongst the three kids. You know, they didn't all get their own bag. They, we'd split them up and divide them. And boy, the kids, they're quick to watch who's getting the most. You ever notice that? Nah? And then I've heard this so many times, that's not fair. You know, she's getting one more than I am. And uh, so we taught our children <laughs> that fairness is hell. And so when they get into this argument about this isn't fair, I'd say, wait a minute. If we really received what we deserve, we would receive hell. Huh? Isn't that true? Anything above hell is the grace of God. Anything. Hey, oh, it's not fair that my health's bad. Hey, are you alive? Whatever measure of health you have is better than being dead. And, and, and we live in a world of everything's got to be fair. That's equal. No, no, no. Fairness is hell. Anything above that is the grace of God. Well, one of my children was in Sunday school one time. The teacher, she, just a little one. The teacher was teaching and she said, well, do you think that's, what, what do you think fair is? And my daughter, hell? Well, of course, that's the teacher. She, she had no idea what we were talking, you know. She didn't know the context and so forth. So she came, what is your daughter saying to me? You know, 
But what God is saying here, if we have food and raiment, therewith to be content. But they that will be rich, and that's the idea, want more than just the food and raiment, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in perdition, in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, while which, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and patience, and meekness. But what God is saying here, if we have more than food and raiment, we're rich. William Barclay, in his daily study Bible, said, It is not that Christianity pleads for poverty. There is no special virtue in being poor, and no happiness in having to constantly struggle to make ends meet. But Christianity does plead for two things. <coughs> Number one, it pleads for the realization that it is never in the power of things to bring happiness. And number two, it pleads for the consecration upon the things which are permanent and the things that man can take with him when he ends, when they end and he dies. He's not saying, God's not saying, oh, the best thing in the world to be broke. Some people take the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, God wants all to be poor. No, that's not what he's saying. There's no novelty in being poor, but it is in realizing that the things we possess do not bring happiness. True godliness and contentment in that way is what brings happiness. When I have more than the necessities of life, I'm rich. Now this time I will ask the question for you to raise your hands. God has blessed me with more than I need, therefore I'm rich. Let me ask you a question. Are you rich? Yes, we are. And by the way, the greatest riches to rags story in the world is in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 when he became poor for our sakes that we might be rich and we're rich in so much we're rich in fellowship I've never met this brother before in my life but you know what we're brothers you know, this is the first time I've ever met pastor this week I didn't know what he'd think of me I still don't know I'm just teasing I, I don't want to think of him. no I'm teasing Anybody to eat bloody food? But anyway, uh, have you ever noticed that sometimes we are closer to our Christian brethren than even sometimes personal family? All right, you see what I mean? Now that ought not so to be if uh, well, family's right, but we're rich in so many things. We're rich in so much. We're rich in the godliness of God that's been bestowed upon us. We're rich in the word of God that we can read every day that's new and fresh. B.R. Lakin, the old Leatherland preacher out of Indianapolis years ago, and he was a tremendous evangelist. Mac Evans, the singer, was taking care of him later on in the years. He was about to die. His eyesight had gotten so bad, so he had a great big old almost magnifying glass. He had one of Jerry Falwell's large print Bibles. Anyway, you know, a big print Bible and so forth. He's laying in the couch in the living room, and he said, Mac, Mac, come here. I just saw something I've never seen before. Now, he'd been preaching for 80 years or whatever it was. He'd been a long, long time. And Mac Evans was doing something, came back in there and said, Doc, what is it? And he was dead. He had died. Mac Evans says, I never heard what he saw. 
in the Bible. Because this book is rich. Every time you read it, you get something new. Amen? And, and, and by the way, I never worry. Some people say, well, you know, I just can't understand that. Honestly, I've got a contentment in me. I don't worry about it. Now, I'll do all my study. I'll, I will dig. I will read what other people say. But if I still can't get my head totally wrapped around it, I say, well, praise the Lord. I don't need it yet. God will tell it to me a little bit later. Amen? Will Rogers said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do and don't live. Amen? Uh, so we're rich. And, but also... If we've got more than food and raiment, we're rich. Now, that brings us to the responsibility of the, the rich. Look in verse 17 again. Charge them that are rich in the world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to what? To enjoy. When I preach this way, please understand, I am not trying to put a guilt trip on any one of us. There's no guilt in God blessing us. Was Abraham supposed to walk around? I'm, I'm, I'm guilty, man, because I'm rich. No. If God blesses you, it's not a guilt trip. We ought to be the most grateful people in the world. When I was little, we'd not finish our plate. And my mom would say, there's folks starving in China. And I'd say, we'll send it to them. You know, stuff like that, you know. <laughs> but no, the truth of the matter is we ought to be the most grateful people. And by the way, I preached a message years ago. You know, when you're young, you do a lot of stupid things. I preached on a message on four steps to becoming a homosexual. Didn't have much of an invitation. But anyway, uh, what I said, one of the first, they neither were thankful. Romans chapter 1. That's a step towards that way. And God pity us in America. We've been abundantly blessed. We ought to be the most thankful people in all the world. I mean, it should not be a, and by the way, you know, all right, you know what that is at, the, at our dinner table? Oh, you're the last one, put your finger up, you got to pray. No, we ought to be one of the first ones that want to pray. Amen? Come on. We ought to be the most grateful people in the world. Not again, he's given us richly all things to enjoy. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We ought to be the most thankful people in the world. Number next. There's the rebuke of the rich, though. He says, be not high-minded nor un, uh, or trust in uncertain riches. High-minded, arrogant. Verse 9 says, they that will be. They may not be, but they want to be. They begins to drive their life, and they always want more. I had a guy, read a book one time. The guy said, you know how you can tell the difference between a millionaire I know a guy that's got $12 million and a guy that's got 12 kids. The guy with 12 kids has enough. <laughs> but the guy with 12 million, he wants more. He wants more. And what he's saying there, don't be high-minded. Don't trust in the uncertain riches because it can be here today and gone tomorrow. Everything we possess can be burned up in a nighttime. And he's saying, don't don't arrogantly, high-mindedly put our faith and our trust in our bank account. But there's the regret of the rich because of that. Look at verse number 7. It says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Verse 9. 
But they that will be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. What's he saying there? We will take nothing with us when we die of our material goods. My wife and I have tried to make a policy now in our house. You know, you begin to collect things. Man, you can collect a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? We have to build bigger barns to store it in, huh? But we've decided to try to simplify. My mom passed away, her mom passed away, and I had to clean out my mom's house. And I'm telling you, I made a decision, I'm not gonna make my kids go through what I went through. We're beginning to try to whittle down so that when I do die, and by the way, when you hear Alan Brooks is dead, don't believe it, I'll be more alive than I've ever been before. You just won't be able to talk to me right then. But we've tried to, tried to, to simplify, because you know what, I've been in this business, I don't know. you have a funeral. Now they're good godly people, a few of the kids will be right on board, but some relatives will come in like buzzards picking over a dead carcass. And I've seen families get into some of the biggest fights in my whole life that won't talk to each other. We want that. Dad promised us that. Mom said we could have that. And it becomes just a nothing but a war. We, brought, we will take nothing out of this world of material goods. Riches, though, have a habit of bringing more temptation to cause us to stray from the Lord. And I'll show you in just a minute. Because money tempts and enslaves. You say, well, how can money tempt and enslave? All right. A person with money, he can buy anything he wants when he wants. A person with money can go wherever he wants when he wants. And a person with money can do just about anything he ever wants to do. This is what we call worldly power. We might, a, a person who has that power to buy anything, go anywhere, do whatever he wants, has worldly power. The point is, a person with such power, the money to buy anything, go anywhere, do anything, is always tempted to live selfishly. I can satisfy what I want or to hoard it. He's always tempted to keep on buying and keep on buying, to keep on going, keep on going, keep on doing, keep on. The rich are far more tempted to indulge in the flesh and to live extravagantly, is what he's saying there. We're far more tempted to live selfishly, to control or dominate through the power of our wealth. The rich and they who would be rich are constantly bombarded with a temptation because they, they keep thinking possessions will bring contentment, not inward completeness and satisfaction. Sometimes they never completely feel fulfilled and sufficient. Money brings a bombardment of temptation and ensnares many men in sin. But let me hasten on to look at verse 18 where it told, shows us the rejoicing truly of the rich. It says, they that do good, that they do good, that they, they, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come 
that they may lay hold on eternal life. In heaven, if God has blessed us, we've already admitted we're rich. If God has blessed us, if we will invest in good works, liberally and generous heartedly, ready to share with others, ready locally and in missions around the world, God, we will be so much happier in heaven because we've done it. Money in itself is neither good or bad, but it is simply dangerous in that the love of it may become bad. With money, a man can do a lot of good, but with money, he can also do a lot of evil. With money, a man can selfishly serve his own desires, or with money, he can generously answer the cry of a neighbor who has need. With money, a man can buy his way to forbidden things. And he can help facilitate the doing of wrong. Or with money, he can make it easier for someone else to live as God meant for them to live. Money itself is not evil, but it has a great responsibility. Years ago, I came across a story. A British family had journeyed out into Scotland for a summer vacation. The mother and father were looking forward to the beautiful countryside of Scotland. They brought their little young son with them. One day, the son wandered off, and he, you know, as little boys do, he, he wandered off, and he found a, an abandoned swimming hole. And he, just like typical little boy in the summer, he jerked off his clothes, and he jumped in that water, not realizing how cold and the cramps that he would get. As he hit that water... He all of a sudden seized with vicious cramps. He began to scream out, calling for help. He was losing the battle, about to go under. Luckily, not far from there, there was a young boy, a farm boy, working in the field. He heard the cries of somebody in the pond. He ran over there, brought the, the English boy out of the pond, revived him, got him going, everything. By this time, the, the mom and dad showed up. and Boy, they were all so grateful to this young farm boy for saving the their son's life. The next day, the father of the Englishman, he went to see the little farm boy and wanted to thank him for saving his life, the, the son's life. He said to him, son, what do you plan for your future? The little farm boy answered, oh, I suppose I'll be a farmer like my father. The grateful dad looked at him and said, son, is there anything else you'd really rather do, you'd really like to do? And he looked at him and said, yes, sir, I've always wanted to be a doctor. But we'll, we're poor people. We'll never have the money to be a doctor. I can't get that education. The Englishman looked at him and said, son, you'll have your heart's desire. You'll study medicine. You just make your plans. I'll pay all the cost because you saved my son. So the lad did become a doctor. Some years later, in December of 1943, Winston Churchill, who was the Prime Minister of England at the time, became ill with pneumonia while in North Africa. Word was sent to Sir Alexander Fleming, who had just discovered a brand new wonder drug called penicillin, to come immediately to take care of Winston Churchill. They flew him from England. Dr. Fleming administered the new drug to the ailing Prime Minister, and in doing so, he saved Winston Churchill's life the second time. Because Alexander Fleming had been that little boy 
that saved his life out of the pond. And it was Winston Churchill's father who paid him way to become a doctor that would eventually save his life a second time. See, money, it can, it's not always bad. It can be used to invest in things tremendously. I wrote down quickly, and I'm going to run through these. What are the blessings of giving? What? Number one, giving in missions. We become interested in and we get to know missionaries. You know as well as I do, you've experienced this week, you know this gentleman. You're giving to him, you know their, their lives. You know this brother's life. You got to meet Brother Solomon going to the pa- Papua New Guinea. I was in a church in Atlanta, Georgia one time. I was asked to come preach at a huge Southern Baptist church. There were probably 12, 1,500 people there. I don't normally do that, but they wanted to introduce independent missions. They were trying to head in a different direction. I got up on a Sunday morning and I said, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever met a missionary in your life? In that crowd, I'm going to say 1,200 people, I think three hands went up. Oh, they'd been given to Lottie Moon. They'd been given to Amy Armstrong or Amy, whatever it is, all the different funds that they have. But they didn't know a single missionary. I could ask you tonight, how many of you know a missionary and every hand in this place would go up? When you give, you get to, you're, you're interested in and you get to know the missionaries. Number two, you can pray for them more because you know them. They're not just some inanimate thing, some awful. You know them. You've met them. You've talked to them. You can understand the world more than you ever thought. How many of you know more about Papua New Guinea now than you did when you first started? You see what I'm saying? I don't care where it is. Whatever missionary comes, Venezuela, Bolivia, Africa, when they come and they share and they show, we know the world better than we ever did. I believe also it opens the door to witness more than you'd ever dream. I don't know how many times when my wife and I are traveling, we go stop at a hotel and Mr. Patel, who owns the place, an Indian guy, almost always, and I go up to the front and I say, where are you from in India? Oh, he'll tell me and I generally don't know where it is unless it's Mumbai or Calcutta or something like that. And I said, oh, I've been to India. Oh, you have? I said, yes. I said, you know, my favorite place in India is a place called Uti. Uti's up in the mountains. Oh, Uti, great place. And before long, we're friends, and I'm talking to them about Jesus Christ. You know what? If you can meet somebody from Papua New Guinea, you can automatically say, hey, I know somebody that lives over there. You see what I'm saying? Giving to missions and being involved in missions, it opens up more doors of, 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 of witnessing for us. Number, number next. It illustrates the grace of God. I don't have time to go there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, he says, the grace of God bestowed on them. It illustrates the grace of God when we give. Number six, it proves the sincerity of our love, 2 Corinthians 8, 8. It proves what we do say we love by our giving. It also helps us, he says, it's expedient for you, 2 Corinthians 8, 10. It's for us. It's also a tremendous testimony and encouragement to others. 2 Corinthians 9, when what they were doing sounded forth all over Macedonia, what they were doing there. It's also, we've spoken about this early, it's fruit to your account. Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. And also, 
Now, we love to use that verse, oh, my God will supply all your need. Did you know what? That verse has a condition. It is not a carte blanche for anybody that's saved. It is, it is a promise to those who are involved in helping in missions. That promise, but my God shall supply all your need, is to those that Philippians who had been giving to missions. God works that way. I was up to speak at a funeral one day, and a man handed me a poem I'd like to read to you in closing. It says, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came her date of birth and spoke of following date with tears. But he said that what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent al alive on earth. And now only those who loved her, and, 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 and now, excuse me, and now only those who loved her know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. <clears throat> so think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel, be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when our eulogies being read, with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.